Chapter 2. The Way We Were Behind every major creative advancement is successive and often incremental technological innovation, adapted content from a known medium to fill the newer medium, and a milieu, a dedicated human populace with favourable macroeconomic structures to house it. The rise of digital media in content, communities and brands is profoundly similar to the rise of its predecessor, the television. Philo Taylor Farnsworth figured out how to capture moving images, code them onto radio waves, and transform them back onto a screen. The electronic television debuted at the 1939 New York World's Fair, where astonished attendees watched a broadcast of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's opening speech. Television content began largely as filmed radio for one obvious reason. The major radio networks of the time, RCA and CBS, brought TV into the mainstream. The best way for those radio conglomerates to build what they hoped would be the next mass medium and to exert hegemony over it was to simply retrofit their programming for television. To grow their reach, as they had with radio, the networks acquired local affiliates to air their content in return for a share of the advertising revenue. RCA eventually split into NBC and what later became ABC, while CBS held on to its position as a dominant media network. Thus, the three major TV networks were born, networks that to this day battle for eyeballs and advertising dollars. Early on, radio set the creative parameters for television. Radio executives told the networks what types of content people were interested in, based on ratings and sponsor support. It is no coincidence early TV news reports consisted of a man sitting at a desk reading the latest updates. Since radio audiences were listening to Western adventures and dramatic readings, TV programmers debuted live, theatre-like anthology series. Variety comedy shows made Bob Hope a radio star, so the networks decided to transfer this format to television, bringing stars like Hope over to the new medium and leveraging it to create new ones. Perhaps the first star created by television was Milton Berle, host of Texaco's Star Theatre. Yes, that's Texaco. For as long as television has existed, brands have been there, blazing a trail wide enough for content and advertising. But there was another dynamic at work while television matured. Government regulation, and specifically U.S. government regulation. By licensing TV airwaves, just as it had done with radio before, the government restricted access while the industry was still prenatal. That, plus the astronomical cost of equipment and the one-way nature of the medium, ensured that TV would never grow into a tool of the people. Instead, it was condemned to history as a voice aimed at people. Thus, the early network owners and their advertisers became gatekeepers. Good programming was whatever made money while adhering to license regulations. The broadcasters were also content gatekeepers, enabled by a government that relinquished any duty to make TV broadcasting more accessible to the broader community. As with any disruptive medium, there were naysayers dismissing the new devices as a novelty, 
and early on, it looked like television might just be a fad. TVs were expensive, and investment was sluggish, partly because RCA reallocated resources for the war effort, so early viewership was low. TV had yet to become a staple of daily American home life. In fact, many people got their fix by leaving home. They could watch a few minutes of a program in the display window of a store while walking through town. Televisions were a great investment for taverns, which could pack in patrons wanting to watch a baseball game before returning home to listen to the latest presidential address on the radio and check box scores in the newspaper. In 1946, there were only about 6,000 television sets in use across the entire United States. That's seven years after Roosevelt became the first U.S. president to appear on TV, and Max Baer lost to Lou Nova at Yankee Stadium in the first televised boxing match. Despite the availability of programming, television hadn't yet usurped radio as the medium people turned to for live news, entertainment, and major events. As the nation demobilized from World War II, the TV became its great shiny new toy, that era's iPhone. By 1951, there were 12 million television sets in use, an enormous growth in a five-year span. Like radio before, TV led people to be a part of something, often something national, without leaving the comfort of home. Viewers stayed in the know, entertained and connected right in their living rooms. Television created a common social language by broadcasting stories of stability and unified culture, ushering in one of the most homogenous cultural periods in modern American history. The great wave of European immigration had ended, and America's heterogeneous communities were being forged into one culture, in part by TV. Television, like radio before it and the Internet after it, and like social media now, was a hungry beast, jonesing to be filled with content, and the networks hustled to fill their airtime. Television's newly extended reach meant that a bigger focus needed to be put on production value. The networks required investment to transcend the idea that TV was simply filmed radio, or the novelty would wear off. This is something today's online video creators have experienced as well. Once creators reach a large enough audience, they realize that the old ways will no longer suffice. It's time to move to premium values and increase content frequency. While the networks had a great amount of power, they still needed to get more people talking to their friends and colleagues about what they were watching. The young medium needed to seduce consumers into buying a television set and joining the party. Networks needed shows that worked, and they turned to programming that appealed to many but didn't turn anyone off, what many would come to call least objectionable programming. It worked. From the early to mid-1950s, television caught on as a cultural phenomenon, completely changing home life. Growing pains. Of course, television is a largely one-way exchange. If a person didn't agree with the values set forth on a TV program, for instance, the male dominance of Ralph Cramden, Jackie Gleason's character on The Honeymooners, what options did she have? 
Television viewers weren't completely powerless. They could, after all, opt out by turning off the set. But the numbers showed that large swathes of the population settled into the couch content to watch and accept the messages being filtered to them. Absent other similarly magnetic options, TV viewers were a huge and relatively captive audience. Naturally, advertisers ate that up. Brands have always had a presence on television, but once television became an indelible part of the cultural consciousness, brands needed to be there. That's where the consumers were. Radio once again showed the way in, providing familiar shows that brands and advertisers could latch onto. And in the early days, attaching yourself to a show meant more than just having the opportunity to pitch your product. It meant getting your name in the title, a la Texaco Star Theatre. The medium was an advertiser's dream, but there were some growing pains. Brands were naive and sometimes confused about what type of advertising would work on TV. The transition of radio media dollars to TV was inevitable, but slow. In turn, networks felt pressure to prove that television would work as a long-term platform for advertisers. In the 1950s, the men who hosted popular variety and game shows were influencers of their day, and sponsors leaned on them to pitch their products directly to the audience. The combination worked, as game shows produced with money from primary sponsors soared in popularity throughout the decade. Intrusive branding was accepted. In 1958, Dotto debuted to wild acclaim, challenging other game shows for top ratings in a short time. Within 50 seconds of the show's open, Colgate, the main sponsor, was mentioned twice once by the show's announcer in a presented-by way, and then by host Jack Nars, who welcomed the audience on Colgate's behalf. Nars also had a Colgate sign atop his podium and two brand images on the walls behind him. But Dotto didn't last long because authorities discovered the show was rigged. This revelation caused investigators to scrutinize other game shows, and they found both the $64,000 question and 21 to also be fraudulent, going back many years. This presented a crucial moment for the relationship between advertisers and television. Networks and advertisers had to figure out how best to repair their reputations and move forward. Both entities needed each other but it was clear they needed more distance from one another. And that separation had to be evident to the consumer. The networks needed advertising money to produce shows, but they needed to find a way to get it without making it seem like the brand was running the show, as it often had in the past. The networks needed to self-regulate, which led to the idea of networks selling advertisements in blocks of time, but nobody knew how effective television commercials would be, or if they'd work at all. The relationship between brands and networks would be more discreet, but the idea remained relatively the same. Advertisers wanted to reach specific demographics, and they would find those cohorts by researching the television shows they were watching. The rise of commercials changed the way brands communicated their message to their target consumers. 
There was no try-and-true method to lean on. But eventually, advertisers and networks settled on today's analytics system of ratings and reach, the holy grail of TV advertising, but perhaps not, as we will see, the mediums to follow. Fracturing Culture Television, programming and advertising alike, became a cultural force similar to, yet exponentially greater than, radio before it. What we now call appointment viewing was the only option for TV viewers. With no way to record or time shift, Americans around the country simultaneously watched programs and breaking news that would elicit reactions, feelings and emotions from a wide spectrum of people at the same time. This communal viewing, despite the isolation of the American living room, drove pop culture and the national social discussion on a broad scale. It helped shape the ideal of what American values should be, and by the late 1960s, what they had become. Many factors went into this phenomenon. The first major one was access to content enabled by the technological innovation of radio companies looking to parlay their transformative success with their built-in, far-reaching networks into this new medium. RCA invested heavily in the television, correctly recognizing how much it stood to benefit from the proliferation and success of the new medium. By the 1950s, when television sets had made their way into more than half of American homes, TV had followed radio to become the second instance of the democratization or mass distribution of a broadcast communications technology. But access to electronic mass communication, the ability to create the content that influenced America, was still wholly owned by an elite few who wanted nothing to do with letting the proletariat in the door. The continued dominance of the big three networks gave them a powerful social role. As the turmoil of the 1960s swirled, the network's depiction of society began to shift and diversify in a way that better reflected and perhaps led to an increasingly fractured American society. The game show hosts who ushered America through the calm of the 1950s were replaced by a new set of influencers sitting at news desks, broadcasting facts and opinions on an increasingly turbulent world. The national grief over the assassination of President Kennedy spread in real time thanks to television. The image of a teary-eyed Walter Cronkite made a more personal impact than any radio newscast could by bringing images into the home of the average citizen unlike anything they had ever seen before. There is no better example of this than the Vietnam War, often called the first-ever televised war. When in-depth reporting brought shocking images from Southeast Asia into the living rooms of America, Attitudes about the war started becoming more diverse. The majority of Americans were now using this major, innovative, technological advancement in their everyday lives for purposes of information, education and escape. Mostly escape. The growth of television continued unabated throughout the 1950s and 1960s. The relationship between the community and the content creators, networks and producers, 
remained as one way as ever. But the influence of TV took deeper root, especially with the maturation of network news. The visual power of television started to shape public opinion. But then things started to change. The television landscape started to fracture, and not by accident, social cohesion did too. By 1970, 96% of American households had a television. The networks found that as a community continues to grow, it becomes more diverse. Programmers continued to offer least objectionable content in an effort to please the largest number of people. But viewers wanted more. More specifically, people wanted more programming dedicated to their specialized interests. And at the same time, the embryonic cable TV industry got its first killer app. In 1972, HBO debuted as a subscription cable channel on service electric systems in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, smack dab in the middle of the first region to embrace cable TV. The infrastructure and installed customer base already existed. Due to the problems traditional broadcast technologies had in reaching homes deep in cold country valleys, people there were already paying for cable just to get a clear free TV signal. So maybe they'd pay more for a lanyap of premium programming, which could be delivered relatively unencumbered by the government regulation of the public broadcast spectrum. ESPN started in a tiny office building in Bristol, Connecticut in 1979, first airing local sports events, but soon expanding to niche sports like professional wrestling, college soccer, and slow-pitch softball. When satellite access broadened, ESPN evolved to appeal to national tastes. Two years later, MTV, a network built on free content created by others, used cable TV to redefine how consumers interact with pop music and, eventually, pop culture. Baby boomers, the TV generation, lived through the explosion of television and the eventual fracturing of viewer communities as cable changed the landscape. Boomers not only adapted their daily lives to communications technology, they also helped shape the societal norms brought on by the electronic media. Their home lives centered on television. They accepted it as a staple of everyday life, leaning on it far more than their generational predecessors. Baby boomers valued the new technology, and they didn't think of the time spent watching TV as time wasted. This, along with their increased emphasis on individuality and cultivating a rebellious spirit, helped accelerate the fracturing of television communities. Boomers wanted more TV programming aimed at their special interests, not just geared to the masses. And that's what they helped bring about.